It's episode 24 of the Keto for Women show. You're listening to the Keto for Women show, and I'm your host and nutritionist, Sean Miner. This show is designed to empower women to find their own expression of the keto diet to maximize their health and happiness. Now let's get started with today's episode. Hey, hey, friends. Welcome back. Thank you, as always, for joining me. Keto for Women, number 24. And today, I am really, truly, actually coming to you from my hotel room at the Low Carb Universe in Mallorca, Spain, in a part of Mallorca called Sawyer, right on the beach. I'll tell you all about it in a minute, but it's pretty amazing. And I knew I wanted to do an episode from here right in the experience. So maybe you guys can all pretend like you're here with me for the next hour and we can pretend like we're chatting just about all these speakers we've seen and just kind of going over what we think. So we'll do that in a minute. Before I do, if you're listening to this right when it comes out on Friday the 24th, Happy day after Thanksgiving for all of you Americans out there. Hopefully you are still feeling really great whether you decided to have a ketogenic Thanksgiving or not. I think regardless, you should be feeling great because it's really not that big of a deal to stress over. That's one of the things that I wanted to kind of chat about quickly, and we'll talk more about this when we have our holiday episode of Keto for Women coming up here. But just quickly, since we are just past our first holiday, I want to remind you that life goes on. It's okay. So if you had tons of mashed potatoes and all the stuffing and lots of pie and just weren't eating a ketogenic diet yesterday, that's cool. That's totally fine. I'm assuming you're probably not feeling all that great today, but you know what? You're going to feel great again in another few days, so don't worry about it. Just let it go. Move on. It's another day. What I will say is that I think my biggest advice for those of us trying to maintain a certain lifestyle through the holidays, and I'll expand on this, like I said, more in an upcoming episode, is just that it doesn't need to be all weekend. You know, Thanksgiving is one meal in one day, and our culture has turned it into a weekend or a long weekend that then turns into a month, that then turns into Christmas, that then turns into New Year's. And it doesn't have to be this never-ending cycle that then we wait until the new year to stop. It can stop today. And you can go eat your yummy ketogenic food that you know makes you feel really good and have all the veggies, all the healthy fats, and get back into ketosis or wherever you choose to be, wherever you feel good, really easily. So keep that in mind especially today is a really good day to remind yourself of that when it's Friday, it's Black Friday, it's still technically a holiday. Most of us have the day off of work and we probably all have leftovers in our fridge, but that doesn't mean that, you know, everything should just be haywire until Monday. Find those ketogenic foods. Give your leftovers to your dog, your neighbors, throw them out. It's okay. And start that ketogenic diet or whatever diet you know you feel best doing right now. That's my little tip. The only other announcement I have to make would be just to remind you of that upcoming holiday episode. I'll be doing that next week. So if you do have any topics about getting around the holidays, any questions, anything you want to make sure I cover, it doesn't even have to be about this holiday season in particular. It could be birthdays or travel, which I'm going to talk about a little bit today. Anything in regards to that specifically, send me an email at info at ketoforwomenshow.com, and I'll make sure to include that in our special holiday edition of Keto for Women. Okay, so now to get into what I've been up to, if you followed me on social media, especially my Instagram stories, you know what I've been up to, doing a whole bunch of 
being in another country, <laughs> pretty much. And I am one of those people that instead of going to the landmarks and the touristy attractions, when I travel, I like to just live. I like to just pretend like I live here. What would I do on a normal day if Mallorca were my home? And there have been actually many moments in the past few weeks where I have wished that Mallorca were my home, but I miss Boulder too, equally. So I'm torn. But yeah, it's been a great time. So I have been here for 10 days now. I spent the first five and a half days in Palma, which is kind of the main hub of Mallorca, the actual biggest city on the island. I spent it right in the dead center. My Airbnb that I rented was an apartment that, I mean, you walk out and you're on probably the busiest plaza of the whole town. Tons of shopping and restaurants and bars and people and tourists. I mean, just everything right outside of my door, which was awesome. And that's what I wanted to experience. That was my goal. And I got to do that. The only downside was that that also meant that it didn't get quiet enough for me to sleep well until well into the evening. And I was already kind of battling, you know, the eight hour time change and being jet lagged. So it made it a little bit harder to get a good night's sleep. But I managed. I figured it out. And now I've made up for it now that it's been a while. But it was still so cool to be in the dead center. And at first, I was super overwhelmed. I'm not a huge city girl. But it grew on me very quickly as soon as I realized that it wasn't as big as I originally thought. Just my first night of walking around was so overwhelming. And then it got better and better to by the end of the five days, pretty much knowing exactly where I was going, what I was looking for, what street I was on. And it felt like I was home almost. This is Jess Betancourt, the host of DNA ID, the only true crime podcast that exclusively covers cases solved using forensic genealogy. DNA ID goes behind the headlines to answer your questions about this remarkable new crime-solving tool, how it works, how cases are selected, why the cases were unsolved for so long, and how the justice system is addressing it. I include input from law enforcement to give you the inside scoop that we all crave with a straightforward, no-nonsense delivery. You can find DNA ID on any podcast platform. Episodes come out weekly on Mondays. As far as actually eating ketogenic, I know that's why we're here at Keto for Women, so I won't go too much in detail about my actual trip because I know a lot of you don't care, and you tell me, and you get mad when I talk too much at the beginning before getting into the topic, so I'm going to quicken it, I promise, but I do want to give a little bit of background, and I really, I just, I will transition this into a talk about keto, and not just me by saying, how did I maintain a ketogenic diet during my travels to Spain? And I did. I actually just got introduced, and I'll talk about this in a while, to the breath meter, the ketonics breath meter, my first time ever actually trying it. And I was actually gifted one while I was here at the conference. So now I will have more time to experiment with it. But I was in ketosis when I got here to the conference, and that was coming from my travels on my own before I had access to low-carb-only foods, which is how the conference has been, and I still made it work. So I have a trick, which I don't think is really all that novel of an idea, but not something many of us, I think, either want to do or consider doing on vacation or while traveling, which is that I just didn't eat. <laughs> I fasted. I fasted quite a bit. I honestly, I've been here 10 and a half days and I have yet to have breakfast. I'll kind of go into that when I talk more about the conference. But in Spain, when I was on my own, the breakfast options around me were pastries, pastries, croissants, quiches, something that contained a large amount of carbohydrates and a large amount of grains, which I don't eat. Although I did have one opportunity, which I'll expand on that. And so I haven't really done that. It's not something I'm interested in eating for breakfast. So I skipped breakfast. It was really that easy in combination with the fact that my body was still on this circadian rhythm and my eating rhythm from being in the States, being eight hours behind. So I would wake up and just truly have no hunger for hours 
because my body was still sleeping in its old life and it wasn't used to eating at that time or signaling to eat at that time. So I truly wasn't hungry. My options weren't great. So I went for coffee in the morning, which Spain has some pretty good coffee. So I would just have a black coffee in the morning with some water while I worked and caught up on work from the night prior. And that worked out really well. Go put my stuff away, walk around town a little bit or do a little workout, get outside, do that kind of thing. And then by that time, it was three or four in the afternoon and I would be ready for a snack. So I would either have some chocolate and nut butter, something like that in my room, or I would have a snack, a meat and cheese tray plate situation that they have quite a bit here in Spain. That's kind of one of their main things is the tapas style menu where you can just get little plates of stuff. And a lot of them are very keto friendly. So I would just do something like that. And then a couple hours later, have a really nice big dinner that often included wine and cheese and meat and just, you know, veggies, all kinds of really awesome keto-friendly foods. So I had did find it very easy to do that and stay satisfied, make sure I was getting enough food, make sure I felt really good, stay in ketosis. And for me, it was getting to a point where it was almost stressful to try to figure out what to eat in the morning or what to eat for lunch because they don't serve what I am interested in eating. I wanted eggs. And at least where I was, that wasn't something that was very readily available to go get some fried eggs and bacon. That's not super common, at least on this island. I don't know if all of Spain is that way. I'm assuming. So it just was way easier and gave me a lot more time to do other things than to be constantly looking for another place to eat. And yeah, I could have gone to the market and gotten some food, but again, it wasn't something where you could just go get some bacon and veggies for me where I was located. It was just easier to go out to eat. So that's what I did. It made it very easy to stay in ketosis. It actually made it So there was one night where I really wanted to experience European pizza. I've never been to Europe. I've never had their pizza straight from here. And I've heard it was amazing. I did some research and found out how different actually the gluten in Europe is. So the wheat that they use is far different. There's far less gluten in the flour that they're using here. And it's just not the variety that really damages your gut. And it's also non-GMO. So all of those reasons gave me enough of a case to want to try their pizza, full gluten, knowingly eating it. I did so. It was amazing. Totally worth the experience. And because of the fasting and what I had been eating prior to and the fasting the morning after, stayed in ketosis the whole time, no problem. So I felt really good doing that, felt really good with that decision. And it was worth it. So delicious. It was actually a Sicilian restaurant that I found. And so then getting to the conference, let's move on to that. Oh, and just quickly, as far as being in an airplane, so it was a 22-hour, basically from Denver, by the time I got to Mallorca, it was 22 hours that had passed. I packed a lot of snacks. I also fasted quite a bit. It was just easier, again, to fast for that period of time. I also had heard that fasting really helps with your jet lag. And so that was really important to me as well. And I actually do think that helped quite a bit that you kind of can regain new circadian rhythms easier if you do a little bit of fasting and then get onto their eating schedule of wherever you're going a little quicker. So Both of those reasons just made it so that fasting was the best way for me to go. So nothing major, probably a 16-hour fast in there. But then I also was able to find some pretty decent snacks along the way. I brought snacks and it all worked out really well. So just info for you on actually being in the airplane, airport, all that stuff. Super easy. It's much easier than we expect. Just you'll have to probably take your own stuff and Everything that I brought was totally fine to bring into another country. I had jerky. I had almond butter and cashew butter snack packs. I had lots of chocolate, and it was fine. It was all good to go. So then I came to the Low Carb Universe Conference, which was just a quick train ride, actually, from Palma to Sawyer, where I've been for the past five days. 
And this was the reason why I have been in Mallorca for this period of time was to come to this conference and just become as actually a spectator, come as someone in the audience, although I'll get to it, but I did actually do a little presentation as well. And just kind of network with people, get to know some of the keto promoters in the European industry, because I know a lot of them in the American industry, but wanted to branch out in that regard as well. Get some maybe podcast interviews, which I do have some great ones coming up for you all, and just experience it. If I can use this as an excuse to spend two weeks in Spain and on an island in Spain, sign me up, right? So here I am at the conference right now. It is the last day, but what I will say is, and I know that you will because I have an inside scoop, there will be more low-carb universe conferences and they will be happening at this exact hotel in this exact location. I don't know timing-wise what time of the year, but I will say every single one of you right now start saving your money to come. It is so worth it. It has been the best experience, by far the best conference I've ever been to. We've all had a blast. And so, yeah, it's definitely, if you're someone in Europe, easy. Most places in Europe can get here very easily. So you don't maybe have to save up quite as much as we do coming from America to grab a flight over here. But it is so worth it. So start putting your money away. I can tell you that I will be at all of them. And I will most likely actually be a speaker in the future at all of them as well. So you'll be able to hear me chat as well. But yeah, so worth it. I highly recommend it. Start putting those pennies away. And there's a couple reasons why this one has been so great. The first reason is because the place that we're staying is incredible. Like it has to be a five-star resort type place. It's right on the water. It's quiet. In this conference in particular, which I believe is how they will be holding the rest of them, the entire place is just our conference. So they actually close. This is their off season. So normally this hotel would be closed for the season. They stayed open a week extra just for us. And everything they are doing is just for us. All the food, the entire setup, all of the rooms are just for the low carb universe, which has been really helpful. So I think that's one of the huge benefits. The location is gorgeous. Like, If you've been following me, you've seen all of the photos. They're phenomenal. It looks like a postcard every single time I open my blinds. Just gorgeous. There's an amazing pool area. There's an amazing spa area. So all of that is great. They also are, because we're the only people in here, we have both lunch and dinner included in our conference package. And they've been tailoring it just to us. So every single thing is just high-quality meats, tons of vegetables, and tons of fat sources, all kinds of mayos and sauces and aiolis and olive oil and avocados, nuts and seeds, cheeses, just the easiest time eating a really nice nutrient-dense, tons of nice fresh foods and tons of nice fresh veggies while being on vacation, while being at a conference, which I know is so hard in most of our cases going to conferences in our specific fields. I got lucky. I chose the right field and it makes it very easy to stay ketogenic and to be eating what we want to be eating and stay feeling really well throughout this conference. So that is a huge piece too. And all of it's included as part of the conference, which is awesome. And then, of course, just the speakers, who they brought here and what we've been learning about and the whole setup. It is a small conference. I think there's about 70 to 75 people here, and they will always keep it a small conference. I believe their goal is to stay under 100 people or around 100 people. And that really makes a huge difference when you're coming to a conference as a spectator, as a guest, that 
likes the people that they're listening to, wants to get to talk to these experts and these speakers individually, you have that chance. You absolutely have the chance to really get to know the experts in the field that you're so interested in and obviously to get to know other guests. And just the intimacy is really important and really, I think, putting this conference on the next level. And not to mention, Hannah and Bitta are the coordinators. Hannah was on my podcast a few weeks ago, and they just did a fabulous job. It's all been super organized, and I'm sure they will continue that trend. So just to let you know, I'm not trying to make a huge sales pitch right now, and I'm not getting paid by any means, but it really was that amazing of an experience that I would love for you all to have the same experience that I did. It's been just life-changing. So that being said, what I wanted to do today is, again, like I mentioned, pretend like we're all just sitting around chatting, having coffee, talking about what we just learned at the conference. So I made sure for all of you guys that I took notes on every single talk. And that's partially because I'm a huge nerd, I'm a note taker. I'm a teacher's pet and I like to, I just like to be in these environments. I like to learn and I like to take notes, but also so that I could relay those notes on to you. So some of the talks were so fascinating that they actually will be guests on upcoming podcast episodes of Keto for Women. So we'll be getting more of the talk. So in those particular cases, I'll do less of the chatting myself because they will be coming on and expanding on their own time in much more detail. So this is just going to be pretty much almost all of the talks and just kind of two to three highlights maybe that I got from each talk that I thought you guys would be able to relate to. So Keto for Women listeners would find this stuff interesting. So I'm literally just reading over my notes. So you're probably going to hear my papers all shuffling around. And that just, again, it's just as if we were all in the same room going over what we just learned and what we thought about what we learned. That's what we're going to be doing right here, right now. Some of these names you may recognize, some you may not. There were a lot of really great, most of them were researchers, doctors, nutritionists and that kind of thing. But a lot of them were European. So some you may not recognize just yet. They're more so over here in Europe, taken on Europe by storm, but not quite yet in the US. And some of them were either American or so well known that you may know who they are. Okay. So the first one we have, well, let me just give you another overview too. The main concept, of course, is a ketogenic diet, right? Or at minimum, a low-carb diet. Focus on all of these talks were mainly health purposes. So, of course, weight loss is something that is mentioned, but the research more so and the talks more so were on what it does to your cholesterol, what it does to your insulin, what it does to your glucose. And so that's the first thing to mention is that it was a conference that was very health-centered and health-focused. And I know that we are also, as Keto for Women, health-focused and centered and want to learn more about that. So that's the first thing to say. Now, let's start with Ivor Cummings. Ivor Cummings actually did a talk about general health things going on within the low-carb, high-fat community. One of the big things, he's very much into cholesterol and LDL research, HDL research, and all of these as being predictors or not predictors of heart disease. And one of the main things that he said that I thought was really important to note here, because I get this question a lot, is that LDL, so that's what most of us know as our quote-unquote bad cholesterol, that marker in and of itself has absolutely no value of a risk for heart disease on its own. So there have been studies that have shown that, and all these people that presented all had studies to back up things they were saying, which I find so fascinating. So this whole myth that we have been taught by our doctors and going to the doctor and us having a high LDL 
cholesterol or high total cholesterol, that in itself does not really have any correlation to getting cardiovascular disease. There's absolutely no prediction based on those numbers alone. What they actually like to look at now is you can do two things. And actually, there were two different doctors that were speakers that mentioned this, and I thought this was really great. You can use a ratio of the total cholesterol over your HDL, and then you can also use a ratio of triglycerides over HDL. And those two ratios, if you have the numbers and you can crunch them yourself, I'll find it now so that it's not confusing. Here it is. So for your total cholesterol divided by HDL, if that is less than a 4.0, and if your triglycerides over HDL, so triglycerides divided by HDL, if that is less than 2.0, then there is a 99% chance that you have large, fluffy cholesterol. And if you are someone that has done any sort of Googling about cholesterol in more detail or listening to other low-carb podcasts, then you may know that really what we are more concerned with when we talk about heart disease and cholesterol is the size. So there's small, dense, there's large, fluffy, and we're really more concerned about the size of the cholesterol, and that's what is our predictor of heart disease. So those two measures, that will tell you more about your size of your cholesterol, and that then is a predictor of future heart disease risk, current heart disease risk, more so than LDL, HDL, anything like that. So I really liked learning that actually from two different doctors. So that is the big thing in the cholesterol talk. And pretty much, gosh, almost every doctor that was speaking about cholesterol, heart disease, and cardiovascular risk, but then also metabolic diseases like diabetes, insulin resistance, and those, they all realized the relationship between the two. So there is cardiovascular disease in the presence of metabolic disease. Those two are very much connected. He also mentioned that Heart attacks, which we're talking about, that's the cardiovascular disease. Cancer and diabetes, they all have high insulin in common. So that is one thing between those three. And often there are patients that have two or three of those three, right? One thing in common is they all have high insulin. Okay. So I thought that was really fascinating just when we're looking at what we can and need to do if there is either ourselves or someone in our lives who is dealing with heart conditions or cardiovascular disease already, then we also need to remember to look into their blood sugar markers. So they're going to be linked, and most of the time, those are also going to be elevated. And then we know we can actually help these people or ourselves from a metabolic standpoint, and that will reduce the cardiovascular symptoms as well. So we can really work on reducing the insulin levels, and there we go, right? And so it's just putting this, I know a lot of us here in Keto for Women are doing this for health maintenance and health goals, but putting this on a much bigger scale and what this diet has to offer as far as people that are really sick and getting sicker and not getting the right answers from their doctor, which we all know, and of course, again, overarching theme to all of these doctors and pretty much every person on the speaker panel is that we are being still told for people with heart disease and for people with metabolic syndrome, diabetes type 2, diabetes type 1 even, insulin resistance, to still eat a high-carbohydrate diet. And the amount of research that opposes that is absolutely fascinating. And all of these doctors are providing this research, and it's just being thrown away, basically. You know, there's nothing being done to change anything. And it's, I mean, I can't even imagine to be in this spot where these doctors have this information and it's not getting out to the masses and there's no change being done. How frustrating would that be? 
Okay, so moving on. But really, those two markers, I think, are way better values that we should start looking at. And that's what I will be doing for sure with my clients. Instead of just looking at overall cholesterol and LDL, looking at those two ratios that I talked about. Iver also talked about the difference in sick fat cells versus safe fat cells, which I think was really just also fascinating, but really just kind of showing that it's not the amount of fat we have on our bodies. It is, are they sick or are they safe? And if they're safe, then they are going to actually be protective. They're going to protect against you know, if you have any bad foods or food sensitivities or anything like that, you can actually use your safe fat as a shield. This is why he kind of used that analogy. Whereas if you have sick fat cells, you are insulin resistant, you no longer are shielded or protected. And this can be the case regardless of your weight. You can be metabolically obese and have a normal weight if you have a sick fat cells. He also went over ways to reduce your insulin, which I'm going to talk about more when I talk about Dr. Trudy. We also, my friend Stephanie Dodier, she was also on the podcast a while ago, had such a great talk. I'm so glad that she's doing these talks within the keto space because she's not talking about food. And we spent four days talking about low-carb, high-fat diets and what we should be eating and not eating. And then she comes in and talks about, it's not just about that. You have to go beyond the food, which is her whole motto, her whole theme. You have to have this mind-body connection. You have to understand why you are eating the way you're eating, why you're having food cravings, even when you're trying to be ketogenic. And if you want to know more about that, highly recommend you go check out her podcast, Going Beyond the Food, and also her website. But just one thing that really stuck out for me with her, and I mean, the whole thing was just so amazing, but the one thing that really stuck out is that she said 91, and this is a study, 91% of women go into a diet because they're unhappy with their body, obviously, right? That's why most of us diet, which means you are starting that new way of eating in a place of hate, in this really negative headspace. And even if you're going into keto, but you're going into to lose weight, you are going into it with this negative headspace already. And if you think about that, how is that going to impact your transition, how you feel about what you're eating, your cravings? You haven't really done any emotional work to understand that you don't actually have to hate your body. You don't actually have to want to change your body to change your way of eating. And I think that is, you know, just briefly touching on the subject, but she has some great stuff to talk about with that that I really enjoyed. And then we did a workshop together where we actually had people sit in a group and maybe I'll do this in a whole nother episode. I'll do this as a separate thing, but we can all do it together as a podcast community. But basically we kind of made it clear that what you are using as a goal the goal that you have, say it's to lose 10 pounds, and you want to connect the emotion that you expect you're going to get when you achieve that goal. So say you're going to feel more confident and pretty and relaxed or whatever. You can have that right now. You can have that emotion right now. And there are many other ways for us to feel confident and sexy and comfortable in our skin. There are so many other things that we can do to get us there. It doesn't have to be this weight loss thing because both Stephanie and I have stories of us getting to this like quote unquote perfect body and not experiencing the elation that we thought we were going to feel. It wasn't all roses just because the scale suddenly said this number that we were hoping for. It's not how it works. There's so much more to it. And if you don't do that emotional work while you move along in this process, then you're not going to feel it. And the fact that whatever you want to be feeling, you could already be feeling, isn't that what we want? Don't you want to feel happy right now? I know I do. And so you can get there through so many other so many other ways, so many better ways than just watching that scale and then being frustrated when it doesn't move. So maybe that's something I can chat about in a future episode a little more in detail. But that was really fun to do that together. And she was willing and happy to share the stage with me, which I was 
excited for, and there's a nice little bonus of being here. Okay, then let's move on to cancer. So we did have Patricia Daly. Some of you may know she wrote The Ketogenic Kitchen, I believe, and she basically got into this position. She's a nutritionist. She got into this position with her own experience with cancer. And for her, she had cancer and then basically went keto after one year of that diagnosis. And then three years of being ketogenic, she basically didn't have cancer. That is making her really long, strenuous, really debilitating story way, way shorter. But their whole goal right, was to not have a tumor, and her tumor shrunk beyond recognition after being ketogenic. Now, her really big takeaway, and I think this is really important, is that first of all, it's not one size fits all. So it's not the case where because someone has cancer, all they needed to do is go keto and they won't have cancer. It will be in remission. That's not how it works. Every cancer is very different. Cancer cells themselves are very different. And it also should only be used as an adjunct therapy and not instead of. So work with your doctor and do what you need to do for your specific cancer cells and what your doctor recommends. But ketosis could also be a nice therapy to support that. And the reason why, and multiple people brought this up, but the reason why is that we are starting to think, and this is through research, that cancer is actually a metabolic disease. So many people have thought always that it's a genetic thing, and it's actually not. It's seen to be a metabolic disease. Of course, more research needs to be done in that. But the reason being is that 90% of tumors are dependent on glucose. So that is not 100%, but that is 90% and that's seen in CAT scans and things like that. When the tumor is fed glucose, it lights up. And then when it's not, it kind of quote unquote deactivates. I don't have a better word for that. That's not what I'm meaning, but think about it that way. And so she doesn't like to use the word basically that if you starve your body with glucose, you will starve the cancer cells. She doesn't like that. And I think with the way that she said it is better, actually. She likes to think of it as putting pressure on those cells. So they're not having as easy of a time. Maybe it's taking a little more effort to survive and they may shrink and that kind of thing. And I really thought that was a good way to put it is just putting pressure on that. And so that's one reason, of course, to go into a ketogenic state with cancer is to basically put pressure on those cancer cells to see about reduction in size and maybe possibly elimination. But there are so many other reasons, too. For one thing, autophagy, which we talked about a few episodes ago when we talked about fasting. So you can get that benefit, of course, through ketosis as well. And I know fasting is a huge reason or a huge thing to do for a therapy with cancer as well because of that autophagy. So that's something that would happen in a ketogenic state to a smaller degree as well. Just to help with your epigenetics, to help with your insulin, mTOR, which is reduced, that is a hormone that is specifically higher and heightened in people with cancer, to reduce your oxidative stress and to reduce your inflammation, which are all things that are heightened, again, in cancer patients. So the only other thing I'll mention about this, and this is something that I would like to have a whole podcast about, is cancer prevention. Maybe we'll talk treatment a little bit in that episode, but I'm more so interested in cancer prevention by using the ketogenic diet. And the only other thing is for cancer patients, I thought this is really fascinating, is cancer cells can also use glutamine as easily as glucose. And so glutamine is an amino acid. So you also have to make sure you're keeping your protein low because we break protein sources down into amino acids and glutamine is one of those. So it could also feed your cancer cells. Not that you have to be totally protein-free, but you're just kind of in that sweet spot. Okay, let's move on to Dr. Eric Westman. Most of you probably know him, whether you know him or not. He really, in the U.S., is the pioneer researcher for ketogenic diets, especially as it relates to 
diabetes and cholesterol and basically health markers that we would study. He did that pioneer study. He also helped write cholesterol and keto clarity with Jimmy Moore. So you may have read his stuff and maybe not even known it, or maybe you do. He is just a fascinating man. Really look up to him and his research. And now he does have a whole clinic that is based on a ketogenic diet at Princeton. And that's really cool, I think. So love that he's doing the work and taking it out into real life too and helping so many people. He also has the Heal Clinics, which if you've been listening for a while, you heard Jackie Eberstein when she was on the show, podcast number seven, and she works at the Heal Clinics with Dr. Westman to do this kind of diet rehab, I guess we can say. So he went through a lot of just kind of the history of ketogenic diets and how really we were right on track to be a low-carb, high-fat society until about the 1940s when medications started coming out and fat fear started coming out mainly because of Ansel Keys. And even though it was disproven so many times, it's still just the none of that disproving ever stuck, which is just ridiculous to me. And then the food pyramid came along and all that stuff. But prior to, we were already doing keto for metabolic diseases such as diabetes without even really knowing it. And that was already what was being kind of prescribed just based on these studies from doctors doing them, you know, in the early 1900s. So one thing I thought that was really cool and kind of a good way to see it and put it for those specifically who may be dealing with blood sugar issues and a little resistant to changing anything, or maybe their doctor is telling them not to, and but we're like, hey, maybe you should. One thing, easy way to put it, so he was able to do a whole bunch of math and figure out that at any given time, we have five grams of sugar in our blood at any time. Anything beyond that is considered toxic. Our body doesn't need it. It doesn't know what to do with it. We don't really need any more at any given time. So why eat more than five grams of sugar at any one time? It's not doing anything but putting us into a state of toxicity. Another thing is, you know, he thinks that we hear quite a bit that all diets are the same. And I think this is really kind of something that you would hear from a traditional medicine doctor who's not trained in any of these modes like the doctors here at the conference are. But a traditional doctor, just you going in and saying, what am I supposed to do with my diet? They'll basically say like a calories in versus calories out thing or all diets are the same. It doesn't really matter. And his response to that is that the metabolic effects of different diets are what we care about. And by that, it means what is it doing to your blood sugar? What is it doing to your insulin? Those are what we need to find out in not only a response to why is this person sick and how can we get them well, but also how can we keep these people healthy still? How can we keep this from happening in more and more people? And it's not a case where diets are all the same, which we'll talk about coming up. It's you have to look at what is happening to the metabolic effects, these metabolic markers, which are basically your blood sugar markers on a particular diet. And pretty much every person on the panel, every single time they talked, said that there are very many studies, more and more all the time, showing that a low-carb, high-fat diet reduces insulin, reduces fasting glucose, reduces HbA1c, makes your cholesterol puffier, bigger, like we just talked about. We really want the nice, fluffy, puffy cholesterol and not these small dents. Low-carb, high-fat diets do this, and it is shown in study after study after study. So that was Dr. Westman. I also had the opportunity of randomly being in the steam room at the same time as Dr. Westman. So we had a nice little chat there. I was taking a little spa break because I just needed a break from tons of people. And that was my kind of introvert time. And there he was. So we had a nice chat. Then we move on to Dr. Trudy Deacon, who is a 
nutritionist and researcher in the UK. And she had a fascinating talk, lots of great topics, so much so that she will be on the podcast in the future. I'm really looking forward to the talk that she does. She does a really great job at explaining the whole cholesterol situation. So what is happening actually in our bodies with cholesterol? Why do some people think it's bad? Why is it actually good? How much do we need? What do our numbers mean? She did a really great job at that. And she also does a great job of explaining what fats we need in our diets and why. So do we need omega-6? Do we need omega-3? Do we need cholesterol, trans fats, those kind of things? So she'll be coming up to talk about that stuff because it was fascinating. But one of the biggest things that I got from her And this is, like I said, an overarching topic that was just talked about with everyone is we as a society, as a world now that I'm at Low Carb Universe, we have to get everyone to heal their insulin levels. So high insulin is really the root cause of so much of what we're dealing with when we talk about health issues. And like I said, overarching, overwhelming response. This is what everyone on these panels are saying. There's tons of research to back it up. And so she went through some of the reasons to increase insulin. And this really hit home with me, especially as I'm talking and thinking about you as keto for women, people, listeners, friends, things that increase insulin are not what we normally think. Yes, of course, it is eating a high-carb diet, eating an inflammatory diet, eating processed foods, that stuff we all pretty much know here. That's what brought us to this low-carb keto community, right? But other things, calorie restriction. So calorie restriction can and will increase your insulin. And I see this all the time with people in the Fat-Burning Female Project who have come from a past of dieting and calorie restriction and going from one diet to the next, to the next, to the next. And now they're really dealing with blood sugar issues. Their blood sugar is not regulated throughout the day. They're having a hard time getting there through keto. And it's because it takes time. It doesn't bounce back all that easily with us as women specifically. But if you have this passive calorie restriction, you're going to have to do some healing. And obviously the Fat Burning Female Project is the way to go with that. I highly recommend that for women out there who have been in this past of calorie restriction because we're going to heal your blood sugar, because we're going to decrease your insulin to be at a really safe, nice, stable level. Also, lack of exercise. So obviously not moving enough. And we're going to talk about that here next, but definitely lack of movement and getting your heart rate up. Also eating small meals throughout the day, all day. And this is something, again, if you came from this past of dieting or being in the fitness industry like I was, or just really in this weight loss community, we were taught you have to eat six small meals throughout the day to keep your metabolism going. And that is literally just crap. That is total crap. Honestly, there's not a study out there that shows that. It just kind of was this made-up thing, and we all followed it, and now we're all dealing with blood sugar issues because of it. So really getting those meals down to two to three a day, she's a big proponent of fasting, as are a lot of other speakers that were here doing some intermittent fasting to help regulate your insulin and get that down and and the rest of your blood sugar markers too. That's a great way to start. And she also did mention the all of these things that increase your insulin and there were some others so lack of sleep, stress, lack of sunlight, electrolyte imbalances. These were all things kind of brought up by other doctors and speakers too. There's so many other reasons for having high insulin beyond just having a really crappy diet. So this is just something I wanted to bring up because I know there's a lot of people listening that feel like they have been eating a pretty healthy diet for a while. If you came from the paleo community or something like that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's not like a guarantee that your blood sugar is spot on, that your blood sugar is perfect. We really still need to work on that and look at that, and that's something that I can help you with. But thought that was great and really excited to get Dr. Trudy on the show. 
Next, we had Daryl Edwards, which a lot of you may know him. He's the primal play guy. If you've been to basically any conference in the paleo, primal, ancestral, keto communities, you've probably done one of his classes, seen him talk. He's really great. He's kind of the one we call upon to talk about exercise and how that impacts our health in all of these conferences. So one thing that I thought was just really fascinating was a lot of basically health practitioners, doctors, they use the BMI as a measure of how overweight you are. So you can be normal, overweight, or obese, and then maybe morbidly obese, I believe as well. So there's these different categories and they basically, it's a measure of your height versus weight. And it's a calculation that then they come up with this marker. And what was so interesting, he put up a slide of Usain Bolt, LeBron James, him, and another basketball player that I don't know. It was a professional basketball player. I didn't write the name down, but it was someone I don't know. And The Rock. And besides The Rock, they all were seen as overweight. So because of their BMI, LeBron James, Usain Bolt are considered overweight. And so really that just goes to show that the BMI is kind of just BS, just inaccurate because it doesn't take into account your muscle mass versus your fat mass. And of course, we all know muscle weighs more than fat. So it just was really interesting to see that. I knew that as even coming from the fitness industry, I knew that that was kind of just not a real good measure of anything, but it was really fascinating to see that. And then he brought up The Rock, you know, the actor. His name is not coming to mind at the moment, but I know him as The Rock, and I think we all do. And he was, according to his BMI, morbidly obese. And we all know he's anything but that. So I thought that was something I wanted to share with you guys just because I think that's really funny. But if someone's telling you based on your BMI, you're overweight or obese, don't take that as total 100% truth and just get all in a bad headspace about it. Just kind of let it go because there's a way better measures we can use to figure that stuff out. One of them being your insulin, your blood insulin, your fasting blood glucose. Those are the things I'm more interested in and your hormones, of course, too. So really his biggest message here, first of all, none of us are exercising enough at the level that we should be. It's just we all should be getting 150 minutes per week of moderate intensity. So obviously the best way to do that would be say five 30-minute chunks of moderate intensity workouts. And his version of moderate intensity means that You can maybe talk a few words, but you're so winded that you cannot sing. Like you wouldn't be able to sing. You can maybe get out a few words, but that's as far as we can go. And that's how you can kind of determine your intensity level. And he wants you to be above that for 150 minutes a week. So doing yoga, going for a walk, even if it's at a pretty moderate pace walk, isn't high enough. And so he's someone also I'm going to have on the podcast, probably our first man on the Keto for Women show, talking about this stuff because I really want to break that down so that you all know you're doing enough exercise for your body and for your health. I really want to break that down. But he also brought up a whole new hormone that hasn't been really studied all that much except for the last four to five years. It's just recently been found, and it is an exercise hormone called irisin. And irisin basically is known to suppress your fat tissue production. It also converts white fat to brown fat cells, which we know brown fat cells are the healthy, safe fat cells. And it helps you burn more calories at rest kills cancer cells selectively, which again is really cool and really important. And basically, the more active you are, the higher your irisin is. And so I'll have him talk more about that when he comes on too, but I thought that was really cool. And then another person that was here that I thought was really interesting, and I wanted to just share with you guys, if you don't already know this study, it's super cool. You should go check it out. It's Sam Feldham. He basically was the guy, and he's been on Diet Doctor. This is where this study was displayed. 
on dietdoctor.com, and he was the study of the overfeeding. So this is what he did. For three weeks, he tried three different diets. So three weeks each on three different diets with three-month intervals in between so he could kind of reset his body. So he did three weeks on a low-carb, real food diet. He went three weeks on a low-fat, fake food diet. And then he went three weeks on a very low-fat, vegan diet with those three months in between each. And what he found, so this was basically to kind of debunk the calories in versus calories out myth. And he did that. So for instance, in the low-fat fake food diet, so he think he was eating like cereal and skim milk and, you know, things in packages that said low-fat, like deli turkey meat, that kind of stuff. So he totaled up the amount of calories he ate, and it was 47,175 calories in excess that he ate so that he basically took out – oh, and I should mention that he grossly overate, so he was eating about 6,000 calories a day. So I should mention that in all of three of these different diets. And so in the low-fat fake food, he ended up being at a surplus of 47,175 calories in surplus of what he burned throughout the day, just his metabolic rate and exercise and everything like that. That was his surplus. So he should have, if calories in versus calories out were a thing, that means he would have put on 6.1 kilograms. And we are in the Europe, so everyone's using different measures. So 6.1 kilograms, we don't need to know how much that is in pounds. That's not the point. The reality is that he actually gained 7.1 kilograms. So he gained more than if it were just a calories in versus calories out thing, he should have. And he put on about 9.25 centimeters in his waist. So he gained waist circumference. So if the calories in versus calories out myth were a thing, he would have been at 6.1, but he gained 7.1. In the low-fat vegan, because he was eating so much, the only thing he could eat was a lot of vegetables and fiber and whatnot. So his calorie surplus ended up being about 39,967 which would have been about 5.2 kilograms that he should have gained if the calories in versus calories out myth were a thing. And he actually, in reality, gained 4.7 kilograms, but he put on 7.7 centimeters on his waist. So again, he gained waist circumference quite a bit on that. And then with the low-carb real food, again, eating 6,000 calories per day, For 21 days, he was again at that surplus of 47,175 calories, which would have been a 6.1 kilogram gain. And in reality, he only gained 1.3 kilograms, so still gained a little bit of weight. That's about probably three pounds. But he lost three centimeters on his waist. So he lost waist circumference but gained a minimum amount of weight, but was at a huge calorie surplus. So I love this study. I've gone back to it quite a few times in my own research. I'll post the link in the show notes to this study on dietdoctor.com because I think it's just such a, you know, there's pictures and stuff, such a fascinating thing to read and see. Really cool to see him in person and talk about his story. And now he's doing a bunch of stuff in the public health industry within the UK and doing some amazing things there. And then we're almost there. A few more things I wanted to mention. Jamie Caparoso, you may also have seen him. He's been at some other conferences as well. He's someone that does keto, but adds the paleo spin on to it, which I know a lot of us here do as well. And he had a great talk about dairy He also comes from a powerlifting world. He is a natural powerlifter, has been, noticed some amazing increases in his strength by going keto, but he had that paleo spin and noticed some changes when he did try adding in dairy because that's what all the keto people do is they just eat a bunch of dairy. He noticed some changes, and what he thinks is that 
And dairy, it's not evolutionary. It's not something that our ancestors did because, and he showed this really funny slide, which was like, if our ancestors drank milk, they would have to literally go up to a cow in the free roaming cows in a whole big group of cows and go underneath them and get to the udder, just putting their mouth on the udder like a calf would. So it doesn't seem likely that our ancestors would go and do that because they'd probably be kicked out. I don't think very many cows would like that. That's just not possible, really. So very highly unlikely that our ancestors ate cheese or dairy or anything like that. And so that's one of the reasons that he thinks that really having dairy within your ketogenic diet could be not the best move for your body. He also noticed that, and he does this just with his clients too, there's quite a big insulin response, again with the insulin, quite a big insulin response that can happen when you include dairy in your diet. It is lactose, which you know, transitions into glucose. So there is going to be that response. And he's noticed just with his clients that eat dairy, they naturally produce lower ketones. So, and maybe even it just can't get into ketosis at all, but really it's the dairy that's doing it. So keep that in mind if you're someone that struggles to stay or maintain in ketosis and you are still having dairy in your life, that could be why. A lot of people experience weight loss plateaus, and they find it harder to exercise just because of the excess mucus production, which he did have studies that showed that's what happens in, you know, in a dairy situation. So you have a hard time working out. You may experience these plateaus if you have any sort of inflammatory response or immune system response, which we all do to some degree with dairy. Just something to keep in mind there. Real quickly, want to go over, this is from Emily McGuire, who's kind of a researcher in the low-carb keto community. I just want to really quickly go over a list of what she is seeing as far as research goes for ketosis. So there's lots of research and evidence for ketosis for type 2 diabetes, obesity, appetite suppression, cardiovascular disease, reduction in blood pressure, epilepsy, Alzheimer's, other neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's and exercise and performance. So that was her list of all the ones that we have quite a bit of research coming out to support ketosis for that. There is emerging evidence, so slowly but surely more information coming out about keto for cancer, keto for MS. And she did mention that Dr. Terry Walls and her research with multiple sclerosis. If you don't know Dr. Terry Walls and her story, highly recommend that. Maybe someone I can get on the podcast. She was just awarded a million dollars for her research. So that's amazing. And then strength and power. So new research coming out as far as like CrossFit athletes and even elite gymnasts and what they do in a ketogenic state, all supporting ketosis as a great tool to gain strength and power. And also migraines, strokes, brain damage, PCOS, autism, and PTSD. So I thought that was cool. And then she did mention there were even right now 120 current studies going on about keto for XYZ. So in the past, that would not have been the case. Right now, we are really in a point where a lot of research is starting to be done and come out and actually money being put towards this. So to have 120 current studies still going on is pretty cool. We also quickly had a chat about the difference between breath and blood testing for ketosis. I'm going to talk about this in more detail. I'm going to do a little bit more research on my own since I am someone that likes to test my blood and I just received the ability to test with the ketonics through breath. I want to do a little bit more of my own research and then we'll do a whole podcast episode about that, but some really interesting stuff that I learned about that. And I think that wraps it up. I think I made it through almost all of them. If I didn't talk about something, it's because I want to get them actually on the show. But I think we covered it. So we did it. Made it through. You just had four days of conference in an hour. (laughs) Not too bad, right? Maybe I'll just keep going to all these conferences and then doing a really super quick 
relapse for you all. I think that would be helpful, right? So you, in case you can't attend. But like I said, if you have the ability to come to the Low Carb Universe Conference the next time it comes, and of course, I'll be announcing that as soon as they, I think they're even telling us tonight what the plan is for Low Carb Universe in the future. So I'll be able to tell you maybe next week so you can plan accordingly and hopefully be able to come to these. And then I can meet you all in person, which would be so fun. But yes, so that's the kind of information that you get from these conferences, obviously in much more words than I just said. If you at all find it interesting, I know I do. I think it really gives a good case for, like, I always leave these conferences just really solidly in a state where I believe what I'm doing is the right thing for me, but also the right thing to be teaching. And the same thing can go for you, whether you're a nutritionist like me or you're just someone who wants to help the health of your family and friends. If you do have someone that comes into your life that has diabetes or is pre-diabetic or has some cancer cells or something along those lines, then it may be something where you now have a little bit more knowledge and you can continue to gain more as you come to these conferences to feel comfortable kind of explaining what a ketogenic diet is and how it can help and you know, putting them in touch with the right people and the right studies to do their own research. I think that's really important. That's, I think, why a lot of us are here is because not only do we want to better ourselves and our health, but we want to see the health of our entire country and world at this point get a little better as well. And keto is really showing significant ways to do that with more and more research coming out. And these conferences are really helpful to get your hands on that and just get some knowledge. So I'll keep it short, keep it there. And if you have any other questions for the show about what I just touched on or anything else, make sure you email me at info at ketoforwomenshow.com. If you have any holiday-specific questions, don't forget, we'll talk about that next week. Also, email me at info at ketoforwomenshow.com to be a part of our holiday special episode. And Other than that, I will see you all next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Hey, lady. Do you want to make sure that you are doing the ketogenic diet the right way for you? Do you want to make sure you're getting all of those amazing benefits that come with producing ketones and not putting any extra stress on your body? Then head to my website and check out the Fat Burning Female Project. We have a new class starting soon, and I'd love to have you be a part of it head to bit.ly slash fatburningfemale, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash fatburningfemale, and make sure to sign up to get a notification of when the next class will be. Can't wait to see you there.